Hello and welcome to our latest BMJ clinical podcast. My name is Lalitha Bhagavathisaran and I'm the Clinical Outreach and Engagement Manager at BMJ. This podcast is about clinical reasoning, diagnosis, and differential diagnosis, and how to think about these things in the context of infectious diseases. To help us, we have Rakesh Patel, Clinical Associate Professor in Medical Education and Honorary Consultant Nephrologist at the University of Nottingham. Thank you for joining us, Rakesh. No problem. So we're going to talk about these issues in the context of a practical example. Say we have a 30-year-old woman who has a fever and a rash. She has been unwell for four days. She has no past medical history, but recently returned home from a trip to Sierra Leone. What do you think might be going on? There is unlikely to be a single way to come up with a differential or make a diagnosis that will be the same across different clinicians. And likewise, I may come up with the same diagnosis or list of differentials worded differently in the future, depending on the circumstances or not. So assuming I or the clinician has no other information about the case and we haven't spoken to the patient in question, the diagnosis or list of potential diagnoses will come from what I've got in my mind at the moment, which is something along the lines of what might present in a 30-year-old female who may or may not be pregnant in the context of recent foreign travel. And that might be infections such as dengue fever or other Ebola or filoviral hemorrhagic infections. Clearly, infections such as Lyme disease, fluke infections, hepatitis and and TB may also be possibilities. And there's also galangial fever, measles, alongside a whole host of other organisms that might cause a presentation with rash, fever and feeling unwell. Uh, And of course, there's a a number of non-infectious causes such as lymphoma, and SLE, uh, lupus erythematosus, which may also present with similar symptoms. So in the event we get more information to work with, such as her personal characteristics, nationality, ethnicity, whether she's sexually active, in which case she may have a pregnancy or pregnancy or associated presentation, that would be where I'd start with. What, what did you need to come up with this list of differentials? What role did knowledge play? And from my perspective, I started looking at some of the clinical information along the lines of a set of symptoms and the context within which those symptoms presented. Uh, And that's the starting point. In this case, we've got descriptors for the patient as well as the presenting complaints of fever, rash and feeling unwell. So we know she's a 30-year-old female and we also have contextual information, which may or may not be important with coming up with a list of differentials such as the recent travel from Sierra Leone. What I'm not sure is any unconscious relevance I may have placed on any of those cues, but consciously my attention was drawn to them. When it comes to forming a list of differential diagnoses, there's different knowledge required throughout the process. Firstly, you need knowledge about the terminology associated with fever, rash and feeling unwell. And what do those words actually mean? For example, knowledge about erythema, which is a specific description of a rash that may or may not be present or or used to report the rash in this case. There may be other descriptions such as macular, papula. So you you need knowledge about the terms and, and what the terms need from person to person so that things don't get lost in translation. Secondly, you need knowledge about the way in which the body mounts a fever. 
and knowledge about other symptoms that may or may not occur alongside, such as night sweats, which are again associated with certain organisms, parasites, as well as tumours. In this case, you also need some knowledge about the systems involved in temperature regulation and immunity, which help you make sense of, of any potential list of differentials, as well as moving certain differentials up or down based on their likelihood. So connective tissue disorders, drug-related problems, or malignancy that may or may not be causing fever in this lady. Uh, thirdly, you need knowledge about managing all of this information and the means by which you get more information. So in this case, knowing the complete travel history, whether there was any pre-travel planning, such as immunizations or adherence to chemoprophylaxis and the dates or places visited, including rural areas, are all important. Uh, likewise, knowing about individual exposure um, from the type of accommodation used by the individual, the use or not of insect repellents, sources of drinking water, ingestion of raw meat, seafood, unpasteurized dairy products, they're, they're all important. And, and then finally, there's the knowledge about how you put this all together in a meaningful way across the clinical inquiry is critical. As what you ask about and what you may find out about needs constant refining across the various stages. So, you know, in the next stage, examining and, and then in ordering and interpreting tests, which is where all the differences between different clinicians, if, if they are present, will, will likely become apparent. What processes did you use to come up with the list of differentials? For me personally, the, the processes I think I, I may have used were both unconscious and conscious ones. Uh, the, the unconscious ones I won't know about by definition, but the output um, from them probably first appeared in, in my mind within milliseconds. Uh, for, for this case, these were dengue, fever, Ebola, and, and other potential viral infections that that could cause a clinical picture of fever and rash. The conscious processes then took place in the seconds and minutes after these diagnoses emerge. So the case presentation is not one that I deal with frequently, and I haven't developed an automatic approach for processing the problem in my mind. Uh, and I felt that I needed to think through the problem in a more organized manner. So I think to myself, I can't remember the last case with a similar presentation. So where can I get a list of clinical conditions associated with these symptoms and think through each of them for how plausible they may or may not be for explaining the symptoms present in this case? Uh, I also thought through all the various filters I may have in my mind that may overemphasize one diagnosis or over another. For example, Ebola, given the recent outbreak reported on the news here in the UK last week. I also asked myself to check through any diagnosis I may not have given due care and attention towards, such as malaria, because of how common mosquito-related infections actually are compared to Ebola, for, uh, for comparison's sake. Likewise, I also remember a similar case which I talked aloud, where I didn't make the diagnosis and it was eventually found to be mumps. In the end, I tried to remind myself that I still need more information to verify the circumstances and data given to me, i.e. What, what was my definition of fever and is it the same as the one reported to me as well as remember to identify other information that's still outstanding. Uh, for example, the patient is female, so making sure I find out more about women's health and, and, and pregnancy, which is important. And I think it's, it's important to be conscious through these phases that you re-remind yourself that clinical reasoning 
actually is a task that takes place in the real world with a conversation with a patient and other healthcare professionals, both medical and non-medical, rather than a purely academic exercise that happens to be in my head or, or the result of an output from a computer. What role does analytical processes play in coming up with this list? Um, well, what you call analytical processes, of course, play an important role uh, in the diagnostic workup of this case. In all cases, we reason through. There's a tendency to associate words such as analytical, systematic and organised with notions of safety or, or being safe, uh, which is why we engage in what we believe to be a thoughtful approach to making a diagnosis, and which is why a lot of what I've described so far in terms of how I think through a problem is completed in that way that it is. But my, my understanding of clinical reasoning and, and the, the literature suggests that these processes are no less prone to human bias as well as error in some cases and also lead to unintended consequences such as over-investigations or delays in making a diagnosis or starting treatment. For me, it's about the balance between the two and consciously using analytical processes when things don't fit or make sense. And what about non-analytical processes? Well, if we look at non-analytical processes, they have been largely popularised as being uh, fast and the reason why humans have evolved in the way that we have. But the trade-off is one that they are error prone. I think from my observations, the, the majority of safe and safe and effective clinical practice is associated with the unconscious recognition of salient features in clinical presentation, then acting on them immediately without necessarily engaging in the process of effortful reasoning uh, and waiting for or making sense of all the possible information one can possibly get before making a diagnosis. That said, non-analytical processes alone aren't sufficient for making the correct diagnosis all the time, or indeed populating a list of differentials for a given clinical presentation. So in summary, again, both analytical and non-analytical uh, processes are important for making a diagnosis or constructing a list of differential diagnoses. And I think what, what we need to do is develop greater understanding about the interplay between them and how we, we, we might train that more effectively. What role does your beliefs and emotions play? <laughs> in, in, well, in my opinion, so um, my belief system is at work here. I personally feel that emotions and belief play a significant role in, in the making of a diagnosis as well as potentially not making a diagnosis. From my reading around this, that there are probably a number of papers one can use to illustrate the potential role of emotions on clinical on the clinical reasoning process. But but I'd like to share one that perhaps people might not have heard of, which is a paper published in 2016 in, in Medical Healthcare and Philosophy by Engbretson and colleagues, where the main thesis involved in a critique of an evidence-based approach or analytical approach more broadly as the only approach for clinical reasoning, especially in situations of uncertainty is questioned and and the authors share an experience of a case where in the opinion of the individual clinician Trisha Greenaller's taxonomy of uncertainty was more appropriate for for helping them make sense of how they reasoned using emotions and gut instincts uh, when faced with uncertainty and how potentially 
using an analytical or an algorithmic approach may not have arrived at, at the same or correct diagnosis as efficiently or as effectively as gut, gut instinct. Stepping back from that example and reflecting on my experience, I think for me, emotions play a particular and unique role in my clinical practice when making a diagnosis in situations when things don't fit or leading to an outcome that is something isn't quite right. I really rely on my emotions to then help me maintain vigilance and remain open-minded about a diagnosis, as well as help me manage what I need to do now and what I can perhaps attend to later on. How do you put it all together to come up with your diagnosis and differential diagnosis? Well, taking the example of the 30-year-old returning traveller with fever and rash, the, the processes in terms of making a diagnosis or, or constructing a management plan may practically actually happen alongside or, or in the opposite order. In all likelihood, the individual probably has an infection just going on the information presented so far. In these situations, were the individual presenting to an emergency department in the NHS today, a, a differential diagnosis would be made that included those potential uh, infectious diseases most likely w without necessarily a definitive one having been confirmed by the time that the patient receives some treatment, for example. Um, a diagnosis for this type of, of clinical presentation may, may take some time to be confirmed. Um, as some of the sophisticated investigations involved in, in serological testing take longer than others in some centres to come back, perhaps a, a day or a week or so, or even longer to complete, whereas the patient may need some treatment immediately with respect to receiving fluids for the fever or, or antimicrobial therapy. This is a probably a good point to mention that, that the clinical syndrome of sepsis may be good enough as a diagnosis to make in order to, to start some treatment in these circumstances, even before the actual or eventual diagnosis is made. Putting it all together it is a mix between the, the pragmatic uh, aspects of, of treating the patient in front of you alongside the actual process of making the full diagnosis or a good enough diagnosis as and when you can. What mistakes do doctors usually make in doing all of this? The literature would say that the majority of mistakes around clinical reasoning relate to insufficient knowledge or faulty processing of information during the, the reasoning process. I think without getting too technical, but also without being oversimplistic, I think it's worth offering three terms to consider when thinking about mistakes or indeed more broadly differences in clinical reasoning outputs across clinicians. The first term uh, is the word mistake. Uh, I understand mistake as being an incorrect judgment and applied to, to this case above would perhaps be a clinician putting together the clinical picture and proposing the diagnosis of pulmonary embolus, um, but using the same rationale to do so as perhaps other clinicians who suggest a diagnosis of, of, of infection. Likewise, a mistake may also result when a clinician on getting more information about the case for example, a particular investigation such as a positive D-dimer result, again concluding a diagnosis of pulmonary embolus, despite other evidence suggesting infection be more likely. The second term is 
is error. Um, I understand error as a deviation from a result predicted by a model. Again, using the same case example, an error may be when a clinician prioritizes dengue fever, malaria or hepatitis above Ebola due to historical case frequency or, or data about the incidence and prevalence of, of specific diseases. But in the current climate, the contextual information from Central or Western Africa about the recent outbreak from a potential virulent or new strain may be, may suggest different order of di differentials uh, would be more more appropriate. And and finally, the third term is bias. Bias is the systemic influence of a particular variable on a judgment that can lead to differences in judgment between people. Again, using the case presentation of a 30-year-old returning traveler with fever and rash, a bias may be present when a clinician, for example, proposes Ebola due to recalling this diagnosis from memory, given all the recent press in the UK about an outbreak. But despite investigations demonstrating no evidence for that infection, equally in the same circumstances, making the diagnosis of Ebola because of the press about the diagnosis before the full serological evidence emerges in support of it, albeit in the full fullness of time. Nevertheless, the trigger for making the correct diagnosis was indeed the press related about the outbreak and a bias rather than the knowledge. And as you can see, whilst there, there, there appears or on the surface of it to be an overlap between the definitions or the understanding of the terms in, in the case of bias, these may actually lead to a correct diagnosis. And this is the problem at the moment for me um, with understanding diagnostic error, because it would be, in my opinion, simplistic to infer that biases are bad or that one particular form of training is going to train out clinical reasoning mistakes. How can teachers help them do all of this better? The literature for me at the moment suggests we should be developing both approaches in novices, non-analytical and analytical processing, as well as those with experience. Given the evidence from the expertise literature proposes experts use both processes and in particular develop very clear mental models of what good reasoning looks like in the performance phase of that task in practice for a given clinical problem. Anecdotally, I think within medical education, there is a clear distinction between those who we know are performing well, and these are individuals who have a, a, a real clear way of communicating what they are doing moment to moment during the process. Thank you very much, Rakesh, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope that you will be able to put what you have learned into action to better think about clinical reasoning and differential diagnosis in infectious diseases. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the infectious disease topics, especially the differential diagnosis sections. Thank you once again. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and rate us on iTunes.